Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting, and promoting good diversity, wellness, and reablement approaches. I'm pleased to welcome Sharon Porteous from the Inner East Primary Care Partnership as my co-host for today's podcast. Sharon and I will speak with Jill Exxon, Elder Abuse Prevention Coordinator for the Eastern Community Legal Centre. Thanks for joining us, Jill. Today's podcast is focusing on elder abuse and nicely follows on from a previous episode where I discussed ageism and the Tackling Ageism campaign with Sharon, who's co-presenting with me today, and Joel Pringle from Every Age Counts. Could you start off by describing what is elder abuse and what do we know about the prevalence of elder abuse? Thanks, Del, and it's great to be here. Um, Great to be able to chat with you and with some of your listeners today. In terms of what is elder abuse, elder abuse really is any act that causes harm to an older person or is carried out by someone that they know and trust. This abuse could be financial, psychological, emotional, physical, or sexual, and it can also include social isolation and neglect. Often this is carried out by a family member or a carer, but that can also be a friend or a neighbour that the person depends on. In terms of what we know about the prevalence of elder abuse, sadly, we have really limited data or evidence around the prevalence. We have some studies that provide some indications. There's a World Health Organization study that estimates that one in six people aged 60 years and over will be subject to some form of abuse. The evidence is really limited, but what we do have and what we sort of looked forward to in terms of building our evidence and understanding of this topic is that Later this year, there is a national prevalence study that will be released, and that's really going to help to build our understanding on prevalence. Jill, it's clear from what you've said that there is a need for much greater research in this area. From the research that we've been able to access, what is it telling us and what do we need to know about elder abuse? We have had some studies released that give a bit of an indication around some of the current elder abuse calls that are coming in. And and what I'm going to reference is from a seven-year study of elder abuse data that was collected from advice calls that were made to Seniors Rights Victoria. And in those calls, they found that almost all of the reported abuse was perpetrated by a family member. It was about 91%. The abuse was most commonly perpetrated by adult sons at around 40%. And about 28% were daughters. And majority of calls were from victim survivors and they were older women and that was about 72%. So I think really from the data, we do see that this issue, that we don't fully understand the detail of it, that it is a gendered issue. We're seeing predominantly women as victim survivors and predominantly adult sons as perpetrators, but we also see a significant number of daughters as well. So in reality, much like other forms of family violence data, we know that data that's reported, it's really just the tip of the iceberg. It's great to have that level of detail explained. And I think you're absolutely right about the prevalence data and the need for us to have much better research Now, you mentioned the term victim-survivor in there. Could you just explain what we mean when we use that language and and why it's important to use terminology like victim-survivor? I think the term victim-survivor is really important because often I think historically we've often used the term, you know, victim of family violence. And with that comes so much, there's so much, it's such a loaded term and there are so many stereotypes around 
a victimhood almost, but more recently we're really moving towards language, which is really important around victim survivor because as someone who's experienced, you know, abuse or family violence, but they are survived, they're a survivor. And I think there's a lot of strength and empowerment in that term. It is such an important issue to highlight and thank you for giving us some of the limited data that we do have. So given this important issue that we have, how is the Eastern Community Legal Centre addressing abuse of older people? At Eastern Community Legal Centre, we have the expertise or we are working really across the continuum, really right from sort of primary prevention, which is about preventing abuse before it occurs, right through to response. And so at ECLC, we have two teams, Elsa and Rose teams, and they provide support and assistance across kind of legal, social and financial matters. Incredible team. And they work at that response end. And Shahan, who's the managing lawyer, also chairs the Eastern Elder Abuse Response Working Group. But at the primary prevention end, and, and this really is an emerging area. So I, you know, it's quite exciting to be, I think, involved in what this looks like. But Crime prevention abuse of older people really is around how do we prevent the abuse of older people before it occurs. So really primary prevention, it's about drilling down and looking at what are the drivers or the root causes behind a social issue like, you know, abuse of older people. So we really look at the environments, the systems and social structures that result in abuse of older people. And I guess really unlike some of the you know, areas and particularly around preventing violence against women, where there's a really strong evidence base and we understand the drivers around being gender and power inequality between men and women. With abuse of older people, it's not as clean cut as that. So do we have any indication of what some of the drivers around elder abuse could be connected to? While we have a lot to learn about the drivers, there is general recognition that ageism is considered a driver of elder abuse. We definitely want to talk more about ageism as a driver for elder abuse. But before we do, can you just explain what you see as the benefit of an organisation like ECLC having both a primary prevention and a response approach to elder abuse? We have a chance to kind of continually have this two-way conversation and learn from each other and inform each other's practice. And so for me, that's an incredible benefit. And it's brilliant in terms of informing the way we run our training and also informs the way that we also run the Eastern Elder Abuse Network, also known as the EIN. So the EIN is a network of members from different partner organisations. And we really come together to think about regional approaches to prevent, raise awareness and respond to elder abuse. And under the EIN, we've got three working groups, primary prevention, communications and a response working group. So that's another really important way at a regional level that we look at and address the prevention of abuse of older people. Jill, thanks for talking about particularly the primary prevention of elder abuse and you mentioned ageism. So what do you see as the impact of ageism on how we treat older people and on elder abuse? Thanks, Sharon. I think we have a lot to learn still, or I think around the, the impact of ageism, even what that looks like in the day-to-day, but it's a really important question and something that we need to th- really think about. It, it was only a few months ago that the World Health Organization released their first global report on ageism, and this is a really critical document, I guess, at the global level, and that certainly talks about the impacts of ageism being far-reaching in terms of people's impacting on people's health, well-being, and human rights. 
We know that it affects confidence, quality of life, job prospects, social connectedness, health, well-being and life expectancy. And at the extreme end can lead to abuse of older people. You know, one of the key pieces of work that has helped to inform my knowledge in this area was OPERA, Older People, Equity, Respect and Aging project that we ran in 2018-2019, ECLC in partnership with Swinburne University. And this was a project that was funded by Victorian Government's Free From Violence grant. And the project looked at ageism in terms of how this manifests in the day-to-day, as well as sort of what are some of the drivers behind ageism, what people perceive as some of the drivers behind ageism, and what would a world without ageism look like? So we consulted with about 300 community members and collected some really rich data. And for me, that was really an incredibly steep learning curve around really what ageism looks like. It's so useful to have that real life experience as opposed to something that's maybe a bit more theoretical around ageism. Do you have any examples that you're able to share with us, things that people mentioned during that research? Yeah, when we interviewed people, you know, one of the quotes that people said was, you get reduced to that old person, not the life you had that was enriched. And another one of the statements that was said quite eerily by so many women in particular was this quote, and they almost said it word for word, I remember the day I became invisible. I was in my 50s. And for me, that data illustrated, I think, how ageism and people's experience of aging and ageism is different across different community groups. And for men and women, this was different. For women, there was a sense of invisibility and irrelevance from a really early age, like, well, really from 50, even though traditionally we say that the older age category is 65 plus or 50 plus for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And so these issues really are emerging much earlier than when people are supposedly in this older age category. And and I think we need to remember too that ageism is a social phenomenon that, that happens and is a form of discrimination that happens to people across the years. It can happen to people from young through to older. That opera project work that Eastern Community Legal Centre and Swinburne Uni did was fantastic really for getting a much better understanding in our region of the experience of being older. And you talked about ageism and the importance of being aware of it and the impacts on older people in particular. So we spoke last podcast about the Tackling Ageism Together campaign. And I'm just wondering how you see that that fits into your work on the primary prevention of abuse of older people. Mm. Look, the Tackling Ageism Together campaign has been a brilliant showcase of what is possible at a local level that just demonstrates beautiful collaboration and consistent messaging. So big hats off to Sharon Porteous, you yourself and the Inner East PCP team for leading that piece of work with the seven councils. It's a really significant piece. And I think in particular, because it marks the first time that we've had all seven local governments come together, including communications workers together with healthy ageing officers coming together to work on a shared priority around challenging and addressing ageism. And I think for me, this work ties in beautifully with some of the broader regional work that's happening together with the EIN and work that we will be launching later this year, if I may just give a little plug, that is a primary prevention framework around preventing abuse of older people. And this is a framework that's been developed that builds on data from the OPERA project 
and it includes three key themes for actions. It has basically taken what community have expressed around the three key manifestations of ageism and it turns them into three strengths-based themes for action. And these are around promoting positive images and role models, identifying and eliminating barriers to participation, and thirdly, fostering positive attitudes and behaviours towards ageing. And under each of those themes of action, we then have goals that are set out sort of across that individual, organisational and community and societal levels. So tackling ageism together is an example, I think, really around particularly one of the themes around promoting positive images and role models, fostering positive attitudes and behaviours around ageing. And it does address that kind of across that individual and organizational community level. So it's really is about this consistent messaging across the different levels and across the seven local councils. That's really, really important work that's happening. It's so important to hear that programs at this local and regional level really can and do make an impact. And that's not by chance. It's by all the hard work that people have put in. Were there any other projects that you're working on or wish lists of things that you think need to be tackled into the future? In the East, I think they've got some great examples of work happening to tackle and challenge ageism. And in addition to that, I'm also really keen to see work that looks at eliminating some of the barriers to participation and thinking about things that are difficult to talk about. And we often don't talk about, but thinking about end of life planning and thinking about unconscious bias, some of our own beliefs that we have around aging. I think they're really important points that you've raised and something that we try to continue to talk about on this podcast, not just in relation to age and aging, but the way in which our unconscious bias impacts us on a whole range of issues. I was really interested in the framework that you're developing. So who will the framework be targeted to and who will be involved in that framework? I think the framework provides an exciting framework to be able to engage not just people kind of who we usually, you know, our usual stakeholders, but engage so much more broadly from, you know, urban planners to early childcare educators to policymakers I think it is about kind of that consistent language and messaging and it is about working across the community from that organisational through to societal levels. I think that's right, Jill. If we really want societal change, we need to look at ageism, ageing, elder abuse across all sections of society and think about how we can have a positive influence and impact. One of the things that you were discussing at the beginning of the podcast was how some of the data was showing that different groups in different communities were experiencing ageism and elder abuse in different ways. Understanding and responding to the diversity of our community is really important. So what can be done or what is being done to address that diverse need and diverse experience around elder abuse? Well, I think the first thing is to be able to be talking with community and finding out what do these issues look like in specific communities. In the Opera Project, we did have the privilege of being able to speak to different community members, people from different culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, regional dementia group, women, men, sort of different ages. We had a chance to speak to the sector reps as well. And I think what was really highlighted was the incredible complexity of people's experiences 
and how there's commonality, but there's also significant differences. For men and women, I noticed really big differences and in particular we're almost aligned with some of the rigid gender roles that we have for men and women. And then if you follow that trajectory along into older age, the impacts that that has and how it influences, I think, you know, what ageism might look like. But obviously, we've also got culturally and linguistically diverse communities. In the Opera Project, we saw some real really significant issues that were expressed around um, some of the cultural pressures and expectations and how these might manifest and influence people's experience and can compound issues of abuse of older people. Jill, are you able to provide us an example of some of those pressures? One of the issues that really came to light was around older relatives who were brought into Australia on contributing parental visa, I think it is, and you know, often they might leave their country with all their social networks, they might start their home and come to Australia with no social connections, sometimes very limited or if any English language, and they'll move in, you know, with the adult children and they can become this kind of in-home cook, cleaner, childcare, you know, provider, like an in-home slave really. And they're really cut off and very isolated. And I think that we need to drill deeper and understand what this looks like. One of the topics that was also touched on was around the assumptions around ageism. Older people are not sexual, that sexuality is not discussed. But we know, I think, for LGBTIQ communities, and Compass did a beautiful webinar around this recently or earlier in the year, just some of the issues that are particularly unique, I think, for the, for the community, particularly who might have been estranged from community members. And as they're sort of more in each other's lives, perhaps in older years, that, you know, they might be denied their rights to express their sexuality or denied rights to have contact with community. I think those examples really highlight why it's important that we understand the diversity within our community and then how elder abuse can impact different communities. Another example of where this is a real issue is for older trans people and the idea that their gender identity wouldn't be respected either in aged care by the staff or even by their own family members. Unfortunately, there are stories of estranged family members coming back into an older person's life and either trying to put them into aged care in a gender that doesn't align with who they are or trying to bury them as the gender that they were assigned at birth. So someone could be living and identify as female but have been assigned male at birth and then a family member come back and try and force them into a gender identity that just isn't who they are. I mean, these are really real issues that we need to understand, we need to unpack and we need to address and tailor interventions and work with community so that it's led by them as well. Thanks, Jill. So the World Elder Abuse Awareness Day is recognised on the 15th of June, so coming up very soon. I know with the Tackling Ageism campaign, our seven councils are making preparations for some activities to communicate around ageism and drawing the link between abuse of older people and ageism. I'm just wondering what other events, you know, Eastern Community Legal Centre and perhaps other members of your Ian, the Elder Abuse Network, might be planning for that event. And then post 15th of June, how will you keep the focus of attention on abuse of older people? Mm, good question. 
Well, first of all, in terms of events, one of the really exciting pieces that we've been working with the EIN Primary Prevention Working Group, and Sharon, we have you on that working group, which has been wonderful. And we have been working, as I'd mentioned earlier, to develop Preventing Abuse of Older People Primary Prevention Framework and a background paper that gives the context and the data for sort of where that piece has come from. So we'll actually be launching that document in partnership with Ian in June, and that will be to coincide around the time of WEAD. We have details yet to be confirmed on that, so stay tuned on that. In terms of keeping momentum around this topic, this absolutely cannot be a topic that we talk about on one day of the year. WEAD is really important for commemorating and having one day that we really do bring a spotlight to the issue. But this is about working right throughout the year and being strategic and smart and coordinated and collaborative in our approaches, working together to prevent abuse of older people. I'm really excited, particularly with the framework, I'm excited to see what can unfold out of this work. It's a high-level document that will help to guide primary prevention action. And so I'm really excited to see what activities and initiatives might flow out of this. We need to keep the momentum up and we need to also make sure that we're keeping the focus on primary prevention. Sometimes it's harder to keep the focus on primary prevention and really kind of looking at what are the drivers behind this and what can we do to address these drivers? Because if we want to see long-term change, we don't want to just keep addressing and responding. We want to, we want to change and influence society so that we no longer have a society where elder abuse is acceptable or perpetrated. Then we need to be focusing our attention at that primary prevention end And we need to be strengthening the evidence base around this. We need to be working together to trial and to test initiatives. Again, this is very much an emerging space, so we are learning. I think it it gives a platform really for work to happen year-round with really diverse partners. Thanks for that, Jill. We have a range of services who listen to the podcast across the Eastern Sector region, anything from Allied Health to personal carers to social support groups and and many, many more. If they're listening and thinking, what can I do from a primary prevention level? What would your advice be? And I guess then also for managers and organisations, what's their role and response? Mm, Really good question, Dale. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, if if we come at it and we look at it and think about ageism within organisations, I think we need to be aware that ageism plays out within organisations, within individuals and, you know, bias. So there's a role, I think, at a really basic level that we can play if you're offering direct services. One of the things I remember hearing from, from older people saying that when they go to the doctor, they often weren't addressed or talked to directly. They might have a GP who directs a conversation towards the adult child with them in the room as opposed to speaking directly to them. So, I mean, you know, that's something really small, but really basic and really important. It's recognizing the rights of the individual and their dignity and just basic respect. But we also need to think about, do we have policy in place that keeps us accountable to thinking about addressing ageism within our organization? I think it's important at an organizational level too, that we think about What are the systems and the policies and the practices that can support older people to participate fully in the community? And I think that's really important because I know that 
ageism itself is not a term that really resonates with older people. And I think we don't always recognize discrimination in our own lives. But what people do recognize is they understand where they are facing barriers to being able to participate equally in the community. And so I think if we can embed systems, policies that keep us accountable to think about these things and implement good practice, that that's a really important thing that we can do in our organisations. That's a really great point, Jill, and that's certainly one of the longer-term outcomes that we're hoping to see from the Tackling Ageism campaign. So while the communications and the messages that we're putting out over the seven or so months of the campaign are important to raise awareness, we're really hoping that sharing some of those messages will inspire organisations and groups to think about how they are respectful of older people, are inclusive of older people and accessible to older people. And that includes the councils, but also the other organisations that might get involved because we all do carry ageist ideas and thoughts, unfortunately. Uh, It's very pervasive. I think that a fantastic idea for even service provider organisations to think about and consider. That's great points made there, Sharon. Jill, Everyone listening is obviously really interested in finding out more about the Eastern Elder Abuse Network and your organisation, Eastern Community Legal Centre. What's the best way for them to contact you and find out more about all the things you've discussed today? If people are interested to get involved, you can jump on the website and look up ECLC Elder abuse, if you Google ECLC elder abuse, there'll be an elder abuse page that comes up and that that is a page that will have information about ECLC's response services, Elsa and Rose, but you'll also find information about Eastern Elder Abuse Network and there'll be a brochure that you can click on, has information about the EIN and the three different working groups. It has our working group dates. We meet quarterly and has my contact details. So We would love to see more people involved and engaged. If you want to become a member of the EIN and be on the mailing list, please get in touch. My email is jille at eclc.org.au. Thanks for making time to speak with us today, Jill. It's been great to get your insight into the role in which primary prevention plays in ending elder abuse and ending ageism. And I also want to give a very special thank you to my co-host Sharon Porteous from the Inner East Primary Care Partnership. Thanks, Dale. It was a pleasure to join you today. And thanks, Jill. And thank you for listening. This has been Connecting the Pieces, a podcast for the Eastern Sector Development Team. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out our website, esdt.com.au, for other resources and contact information. Connecting the Pieces is recorded on Wurundjeri land. The Eastern Sector Development Team acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of land and sea throughout Australia and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Eastern Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government Department of Health and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the materials and comments made do not necessarily represent the views or the policies of the Australian Government.